Section 4 of Gallipoli Diary. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. Gallipoli Diary by John Graham Gillum. Section 4, April 26th to April 28th. Monday, April 26th. I wake about seven and find myself nestling up close against Foley, who is still asleep. I wake him, and he promptly falls asleep again, murmuring something about that, dash, machine gun. The beach quickly becomes alive with men, all working for dear life, and we get to our feet, go down to the water's edge and bathe our faces, and start to finish the work of making a small supply depot which we left last night. My servant comes to tell me that breakfast is ready, and we go up the cliff and join Way and Carver at a repast of biscuits, jam, bacon, and tea. But the tea tastes strong of seawater. All water had been carried with us in tins, and we had struck a bad batch, for most of them leaked. And then our day's work begins in all seriousness. By night O'Hara wishes us to have a proper supply depot working. The quartermasters coming with fatigue parties, presenting their B-55s, and rations to the full are promptly issued and accounted for in our books. At frequent intervals the fleet bombard, but we are quite used to the roar of guns now. I am covered and coated with clayey mud and have no time to clean myself properly. We have to take cover continually from snipers, unknown enemies who fire at us from Lord knows where. One open part of the beach is especially dangerous and I cross that part about six times during a day. Not a very wide space, but I feel each time I go across that I am taking a long journey. The dead are still lying about, and as there is no time to bury them, we pass to and fro by their bodies unheedingly. In addition to these snipers who pick off one of our number now and again, we have spent bullets flying in all directions, for our firing line is but a few hundred yards away. The Turk, however, does not appear to have a proper firing line. He only seems to have advanced posts strongly held, and must have retreated well inshore. It is a blessing for us that no shells come along, only these spent bullets and the deadly shots from the unseen snipers. Heavy firing sounds, however, from V Beach, a rattle of musketry and a roar of the battleships and torpedo boat destroyers lying at the mouth. Colonel Beaton and Major Stridinger are getting a proper system of supply and transport working. We become venturesome in the late afternoon, and many of us, quite two to three hundred, go up on the highland on the right and left of the beach and make a tour of the lately captured trenches. Turkish dead are lying about in grotesque attitudes. The trenches are full of equipment, and I notice particularly bundles of remarkably clean linen, and many loaves of bread, one loaf sticking out of a dead Turk's pocket. Several of the dead are dressed in navy blue uniform with brass buttons, but most are in khaki with gray overcoats and cloth hats. Suddenly a whistle blows and several cry, Get off the skyline! and we all run helter-skelter for the safety of the beach. When darkness arrives we have a proper supply depot working, and strings of pack mules are hard at work carrying stores. Guns, ammunition, and men are everywhere. The engineers have run out a pier already. Everyone is in the best of spirits, 
for we have tasted a brilliant victory, and organizing brains are still at work in preparation for further ventures. I go to sleep behind boxes with the sound of heavy rifle fire disturbing the night. Tuesday, April 27th. I am ordered to make a small advance depot just behind the firing line, using pack mules under Colonel Patterson of the Zion Mule Corps. The drivers are Syrian refugees from Syria, and curiously enough speak Russian as their common language. While up there, but a very short walk from the beach, I sit down on the layer's seat of one of the 18-pounders of one of the batteries in position just behind our line. The battery is not dug in at all. I look through a telescopic sight, but can only see a lovely view of grass, barley, gorse, and flowers, hillocks, nullahs, and the great hill of Achibaba in the background, looking like Polyphemus in Dido and Aeneas, with an ugly head and arms outstretched from the straits to the Aegean. I ask where the Turks are, and they point to a line some two thousand yards away, marked by newly turned earth, which is just distinguishable through strong glasses. I can see no sign of life, but away up on the ridges of Achibaba, columns of earth and smoke suddenly burst from the ground, caused by the shells of our fleet. Rifle fire has died down, hardly a shot on our front comes over, and no shells at all. On our right, shell fire continues. I hear that V Beach is taken. It was taken midday yesterday, but with heavy casualties. The Dublins, Munsters, and Hants had the job, and the Hants did magnificently. Colonel Williams, the first general staff officer, behaved most gallantly. Snipers were worrying after the village was taken, and in crossing a certain part of the village, he exposed himself by mounting a wall, and, standing there for a time, looked down, saying to men round him, you see, there are no snipers left, men. They leapt after him like cats and were through the village in no time. Man after man had been hit on that wall that morning. I make a little depot of boxes just behind the battery and go back to the beach and load for another journey. On arrival there, Colonel Beeden orders me to proceed to V Beach to collect all stores there and make an inventory. For at first this was to have been our beach, had we been able to land on the first day. The French are to take it over now, as they are coming back from the Asiatic side, evacuating it entirely. I go down to W Beach for a fatigue party of the Royal Naval Division, and am told to apply to the Naval Landing Officer, and an officer standing talking on the sands is pointed out to me as he. I go up to him and wait for an opportunity to catch his eye, for he is an admiral, he is talking to a captain, and two midshipmen are standing near. I wait fifteen minutes, maneuvering for position so that he may ask me what I want. I think I must have shown signs of impatience, for the admiral turned full round toward me, and, after looking at me in mild surprise for a few seconds, during which I felt a desire to turn round and run up the cliff, quietly turned round to the captain and continued his conversation. A minute or two passed, and he walked away with the midshipman, and the captain asked me what I wanted. I told him a fatigue party, and he pointed out a Royal Naval Division officer a hundred yards away to whom I went, at once obtained satisfaction, and to whom I should have gone at the start. I find I have made an ass of myself, and therefore administer mental kicks.
With my fatigue party, my corporal, private, and servant, I march up the cliff toward V Beach. We pass the lighthouse, which has been badly knocked about, following the line of the Turkish trench, which is along the edge of the cliff, to the fort, which had withstood the bombardment well. At the fort we see two huge guns of very old pattern, knocked about a good deal. Then we dip down to V Beach, a much deeper and wider beach than W, and walk towards the sea. Then I see a sight which I shall never forget all my life. About two hundred bodies are laid out for burial, consisting of soldiers and sailors. I repeat, never have the Army and Navy been so dovetailed together. They lie in all postures, their faces blackened, swollen, and distorted by the sun. The bodies of seven officers lie in a row in front by themselves. I cannot but think what a fine company they would make if, by a miracle, an unseen hand could restore them to life by a touch. The rank of major and the red tabs on one of the bodies arrests my eye, and the form of the officer seems familiar. Colonel Gostling of the 88th Field Ambulance is standing near me, and he goes over to the form, bends down, and gently removes a khaki handkerchief covering the face. I then see that it is Major Costaker, our late brigade major. In his breast pocket is a cigarette case and a few letters. One is in his wife's handwriting. I had worked in his office for two months in England and was looking forward to working with him in Gallipoli. It was cruel luck that he even was not permitted to land, for I learned that he was hit in the heart on the hopper shortly after General Napier was laid low. His last words were, Oh, Lord, I am done for now. I notice also that a bullet has torn the toes of his left foot away. Probably this happened after he was dead. I hear that General Napier was hit whilst in the pinnace on his way to the River Clyde by a machine-gun bullet in the stomach. Just before he died, he said to Sinclair Thompson, our staff captain, Get on the Clyde and tell Carrington Smith to take over. A little while later he apologized for groaning. Good heavens! I can't realize it, for it was such a short while ago that we were all such a merry party at the Warwick Arms, Warwick. I report to Captain Stoney of the King's Own Scottish Borderers, who is the military liaison officer, and he hands over supplies to me. I clear the beach, make a small supply depot, and take stock, and start to issue to all and sundry as on W Beach the previous day. All day the French are arriving from the Asiatic side. No shelling. Evidently the Turks have no artillery. Davidson, a Royal Naval Division officer, tells me that he is quite used to handling the dead now. He has been told off to identify them on this beach and to take charge. I have a good look at the River Clyde. She managed to get within 200 yards of shore, and now she is linked to the beach by hoppers. Two gangways are down at either side at a gentle slope from holes halfway up her sides, and very flimsy arrangements they are. It is difficult for the troops to pass each other on them. Men poured out from these holes in the ship at a given signal early on Sunday morning, and were quickly caught by machine-gun fire, dropping like flies into the sea, a drop of twenty feet. Some of those who fell wounded from the hopper in the shallow water close inshore 
drowned through being borne down by the weight of their packs. Colonel Carrington Smith, who took over command of the brigade when General Napier was killed, was looking round the corner of the shelter of the bridge through glasses at the Turkish position on shore when he was caught by a bullet clean in the forehead and died instantly. Sunday night on the Clyde was hell. One or two shells, luckily small ones from Asia, burst right through the side of the ship. Doctors did splendid work for the wounded all night on board. A sigh of relief came from all on board when the signal was given next day to land and take the beach, which was taken after much hand-to-hand -hand fighting, the enemy putting up a gallant resistance, encouraged as they were by their success in preventing us from landing on this beach on Sunday. Addison of the Hants is gone. He met his end in the village of Sedel Bar. He was leading his men, firing right and left with his revolver. He met a Turk coming round the corner of a street. He pulled the trigger of his revolver. Nothing happened. He opened it, found it empty, threw it to the ground with a curse, went for the Turk with his fist, but was met by a well-aimed bomb, which exploded in his face, killing him instantly. It sounds horrible, but it is war these days. Perhaps I am oversensitive, but a lump comes to my throat as I write this. For just over a month ago, Addison and I used to talk about books at the Warwick Arms, Warwick, and the sight of him reading with glasses, smoking his pipe before the fire of an evening, is still fresh in my memory. It would have been hard to believe then that such a quiet, reserved soul would meet his end fighting like a raging lion in the bloody streets of Sedel Bar a few weeks later. But that has now actually happened, and similar ends will meet like brave men again and again before this war is over. A little amusing diversion is caused in the afternoon of today by a hare running across the beach, chased by French Paulieu, and being very nearly rounded up. At 5 p.m., while making up my accounts for the day, I hear from the Asiatic side the boom of a gun, followed by a sound not unlike the tearing of linen, ending in a scream and explosion. Not very big shells, and the first so far that I have experienced on shore. I look towards Asia and see a flash in the blue haze of the landscape there, and over comes another, dropping in the sea near the Clyde. They follow quickly in succession, and each time I see the flash, I duck with my three stalwart henchmen behind our little redoubt of supplies, proof only against splinters. The nearest falls but twenty yards away, and does not explode. I see through my glasses two destroyers creep up towards the enemy's shores and fire rapid broadsides. After a few of these, we are left in peace. I am once or twice called up on the telephone, a telephone worked by a signaller lying on the ground, the instrument being in a portable case. It is strange, saying, Are you there? Under these conditions and with these surroundings. The signal arrangements are excellent. Calls come in constant succession from W, X, and S beaches. A wireless instrument is hard at work, run by a Douglas engine in a tent, controlled by a detachment of Australians. One of the Australians, a corporal, offers me a shakedown in his tent for the night and lends my men some blankets for their bivouac, which they have constructed out of my little supply depot. 
Owen, officer commanding signals, says that I shall not get much sleep in the wireless tent, and that I had better share his tent, which is in a little orchard behind a ruined house, close handy. I have my evening meal of bully, biscuit, and jam, and, lighting my pipe, go for a stroll in the village, but am stopped by sentries, for snipers are still at large there, and several casualties have occurred today there through their industry. I cannot help admiring the pluck of these snipers, for their end is certain and not far off. Two mutilated bodies of our men are lying in a garden of a ruined house, but this case so far is isolated. We have seen the Turks dressing the wounds of some of our men captured by them. The Turks appear to be a strange mixture. April 28th. I awake feeling very fit and refreshed, and find a beautiful morning awaiting me. Opposite our tent is a little bivy, made of oil sheets and supported by rope to one of the walls of the house and a lilac tree. A head pokes out from under this bivy, with a not very tidy beard growing on its chin, and the owner loudly calls for his servant. While making his toilet, he joins in a merry banter with Owen, who is indulging in a cold douche obtained from a bucket of water. Some of the French, having invaded the sanctuary of our walled-in camp, picking several of the iris growing in the wild grass, the officer with the beard asks me to tell them to get off his lawn, which I do. I find later that he is Josiah Wedgwood, M.P., and, being interested, get into conversation with him. He is a most entertaining man, and tells me that he is officer commanding armored cars, but that, as it is not possible for his cars to come on shore, he has been instructed to use his intelligence and make himself useful, which he was trying to do with a painful effort. Finding that I was a supply officer, he begs for some tobacco, saying that he would be my friend for life if I could get him some, which I managed to do, for yesterday I issued tobacco and cigarettes with our rations, and had some over. I go down to my depot for a wash, shave, and breakfast. Biscuit and bacon do not go well together. While washing, shells begin to arrive, bursting on the crest of the hill at the back of the beach. One or two come near to the beach, and a splinter flies toward us, hitting the boxes behind which we all crowd. The nearest so far, so I preserve the splinter. French troops are now in large numbers on the beach, and I meet my friend the Russian officer who was on the Arcadian. I see General Damod and his staff. A French officer takes some snaps for me with my camera, as he knows more about photography than I do, including one of a French machine-gun company, who had then two guns in position screened by branches of lilac at the entrance to the village. He made fun of them, telling them it would have been just as much sense if they had placed a rusty sewing machine, which happened to be lying near, in position instead. Looking rather foolish, the gunners pack up and go off somewhere. I am wanted on the telephone and hear O'Hara talking at the other end. He says I am to hand over the remaining supplies to the Royal Naval Division Beach Party and come back to W Beach with the senior supply officer who is coming over. Senior supply officer arrives shortly after. I hand over to the senior officer of the Royal Naval Division, a fine old boy with a crown and a star up, who tells me he landed at W Beach on Sunday morning at 6 and had joined in the scrapping himself. We go on the River Clyde, and from there I take photographs of the beach and 
one of the mounds of earth that had proved shelter for those men whom I had seen from the Dongola, crouching for cover on Sunday morning. We get on to a trawler from the River Clyde, which takes us round to W Beach, and I enjoy the brief sea trip, and it is very interesting viewing the scenes on shore from the sea. Off W Beach we get on to a pinnace which takes us alongside a very good pier, considering the short time the engineers have had to construct one. On shore I find the King's own Scottish borderers arriving from Y Beach, where they have had a rough handling. Y Beach appears to have been evacuated. I find a lot of officers I know have gone, including Coe, the colonel, a very fine type of man. He really should never have come out, for he was in indifferent health. He was shot in the arm, which had to be amputated, and he died shortly afterwards. Our depot has grown, for more supplies have come ashore. Our colonel and a few more of the train officers have arrived. We have quite a good lunch. I find Phillips, our officer commanding company, has gone inland with some pack mules. He comes back later with rather depressing news. I hear that a battle has been started, but I do not pay much attention, for I am quite accustomed now to the sound of rifle fire and the roar of the ship's guns. The battle develops in the afternoon to a general attack on our part. We are well inshore now, I should say two and a half miles. Anyway, no bullets are flying about the beach now. All snipers have been rounded up, one of the worst offenders, a huge fellow, falling dead from a tree yesterday. 5.30 p.m. Brigade supply officers are ordered to find out the location of their units. Horses can be had on application from division headquarters. I asked to be allowed to proceed on foot, and am granted permission, but they rather wonder why I ask. The honest reason is because I am nervous, and I prefer to be nervous on foot than a nervous rider on horseback over a difficult country. I make a beeline inshore, and after a quick walk of fifteen minutes or so, become intensely interested in what I see. Shells are passing over my head from the fleet, but the rifle fire appears to have died down. Wounded are straggling back in twos and threes, and bearers carrying the more serious cases with great fatigue to themselves. To carry a man two and a half miles over rough ground on a stretcher is hard work. Nearing the line I pass police forming battle posts, and these, together with the badges of the wounded men which are sewn on their tunics, returning to the beaches, helps me to steer my course. Now and again I am warned not to go near where snipers are said to be, and perpetually I trip over thin black wires, which serve for the nonce for signalers' cables. Passing a cluster of farm buildings, I arrive at last at a scene of great activity, and feel relieved that I am once more amongst men. A trench is being dug with forced energy. Orderlies are passing to and fro, signalers at work laying cables, doctors dressing wounded, and bearers carrying them to the rear. I discover that we have had a setback. I learn that we were heavily outnumbered, but that at 5 p.m. the Turks had retreated hastily to almost beyond Krithia, which lies in flames on the high land in front of me towards the left, and that actually the Lancashires had been through the village. Walking along the line I find the 86th Brigade, and from them learn where Headquarters 88th are, on my way there I pass Captain Parker and Major Lee of the Hants. Major Lee asks me excitedly if they are getting on with the digging of the trench, 
and then asks me to get some water up to some of his battalion on his right by the French, which I promised to do this night. Walking further along, I cross a white road of some kind of paving, and then at last reach my headquarters. I see Thompson, who looks very ill and tired, but appears very cool and quiet. I shall never forget his smile when he saw me, saying, Hello, Gillum, in a quiet voice. I see Panton, busy at dressing wounded, for alongside headquarters is an advanced dressing station. On my right I notice French troops hard at work continuing the digging of the line to the edge of the Dardanelles. I find out what is wanted in the way of food and water, and where it is to be dumped, and start off back to the beach. It is twilight and rapidly getting dark, and it is difficult to find my way back to the right beach, namely W. I remember with a shudder those silent clumps of bushes and trees, and wonder if snipers are still alert. I steer my way back by the masts of the ships, the heads of which I can just see, and I walk as the crow flies over every obstacle I find. I had learnt at brigade headquarters that the white road ran between Krithia and Sedel Bar, and mentally I made a note of the way I should take rations on my return journey, namely, to Sed El Bar from W Beach via V Beach, and thence up the white road. I see three figures ahead limping, and, as I had not seen a soul for fifteen minutes, and it is getting dark now, I finger my revolver, wondering if they are some of our most trying enemies, the snipers. But that thought is only born from nerves, for they are limping and must be wounded. On overtaking them, I find that one is an officer, Cox of the Essex, one of those who had played the priest of the parish on the Dongola the night before the landing. He is the only one limping from a bullet wound in his calf. He is supported by his arms resting around the shoulders of two men, one his servant, unwounded, and the other a man wounded through the arm. Cox tells me that he took cover in a nulla when hit and remained there all day. Twice the French advanced over him, and twice they retreated, leaving him between the enemy's lines. A third time British and French advanced, and he was rescued and helped back. I wish him further luck in this war, for luck had befallen him, he an infantryman, and a bullet wound in his leg. I like him rather specially, and feel glad that he is to be out of it for a while. It is now quite dark, and I have missed my bearings and see a few small lights ahead and make for them, and am very soon pulled up short by the challenge of a sentry. I discover it is signals of divisional headquarters, and am directed to headquarters, where I am interviewed by a general staff officer, who asks me the position of troops. I tell him, French on the right, and then 88th, 86th, and 87th. I learn that I am on Hill 138, the future name of divisional headquarters. I am directed back to W Beach, and then endeavor to find O'Hara. After fifteen minutes I find him and report what I had done, and am told that he had learnt that a dump of rations, ammunition, and water is to be made at Pink Farm. Learning that Pink Farm is the collection of buildings that I had struck earlier in the afternoon, I point out that this farm will be too far to the left for my brigade, and that I found a convenient site for the 88th dump, on the right side of the Sedel Bar Krithia Road. But I am told that I must have made a mistake. This disturbs me somewhat, as I feel that I am right. He tells me to come along with him up to Pink Farm, 
as pack mules with rations, ammunition, and water had started for this dump. We overtake some of them. Further on we meet Carver coming back on horseback, and he reports where 87th Brigade headquarters is. I now see that the reason why they have decided on Pink Farm for a dump is because Way had come back first and reported where his brigade was, and that, through Carver and I not having turned up, they decided on Pink Farm as a divisional dump for all the brigades. As a matter of fact, Pink Farm will suit 87th as well as 86th, for it lies between the two, and rations, etc., from the one dump can be manhandled to the two brigades. But for the 88th, the dump is right out of it. We meet Phillips, our 88th transport officer and officer commanding number four company, a good soldier, Ford, quartermaster of the Essex, and Grogan, transport officer of the King's Own Scottish Borderers, a delightful chap. And passing them, we arrive at Pink Farm, where I tell my tale to Colonel Beden and Major Stridinger. It is now raining hard, and I have no coat. It is hard work getting through the clayey mud. They apparently do not consider my statement that this dump is of no use whatever to the 88th, for a bush that I can just see a hundred yards away is pointed out, the moon then being up above the clouds, and I am ordered to go two hundred yards beyond there, where I will find Thompson in 88th Brigade headquarters, and to arrange with him for fatigue parties to come back and carry up water. They say they have just been talking to Thompson. This puzzles me, and I start off for that bush. I hate bushes just now. I pass it and come to a brook full of the loudest croaking frogs I have ever heard. Without much exaggeration, they made as much row as a dozen people would, all talking together loudly. Then I pace what I think is two hundred yards in front of that bush and come to nothing at all. Remembering that in the dark one hardly ever walks in a straight line, I alter my course and, walking a few yards, see the rays of an electric torch shining, towards which I walk quickly. It is immediately switched out as I approach, and now, feeling cautious, I shout, Are you British? But, receiving no answer, I shout once more, and am glad to receive an answer of, Aye, aye. I go up to them and find that it is our front line, and inquire where brigade headquarters is. A little light to my right, but behind, rather, is pointed out, to which I go. There I find Thompson in a trench, and give him the message as instructed. The light of a torch shining on his face shows me a look of annoyance, expressive of his thoughts that I am a fool. He politely tells me that he wants rations taken to the spot that he had pointed out in the afternoon. I find that I am at 86th Brigade Headquarters, and that Thompson is but visiting there for a conference. Having a difficulty in finding my way to Pink Farm, I make for the front line once more, whence the direction is pointed out to Pink Farm, for I can only see a hundred yards ahead, and all bushes look alike. I hear the noise of croaking frogs and make for it. It comes from the brook that I had passed, and from there I go towards what I think is Pink Farm, but find that it is a collection of the pack mules under Phillips, and I unload my feelings in horribly bad language. Then Phillips gives me a packet of cigarettes, which I am entirely without. I am wet through now, to the skin, and dog-tired, 
My pocket is full of iron ration biscuits, and between puffs of my cigarettes I munch on them. Not a sound of a shot, not a flash of a gun. Old John Turk has had a nasty knock and is over a thousand yards away. Nothing but the sound of the hiss of the gently falling rain. I follow the farmer's track up to Pink Farm and tell my troubles to Colonel Beeden. Colonel Williams, who had distinguished himself at Sedel Bar, is there without a coat and soaked to the skin as I am. I am instructed to take the remaining mules back to W Beach, link any which I pass that are on the way up onto my convoy, and also pick up any which are starting off from W Beach, make one convoy, take stock, and make note of it, and take the whole through Sedel Bar up to the spot Thompson had pointed out to me in the afternoon. I think of the tale of the odd job man who has been given every imaginable job in the world by his old lady mistress, and who asked her if her house was built on clay, as he would very much like to make bricks in his spare time. I go back to Phillips. The convoy is turned round and off we trek, I at the head, Phillips in the rear. I meet Davy on the way up with a convoy of his, and accordingly instruct him to join on to my convoy. He says, Look here, Gillum, old boy, you're fagged out and are making a mess of things. Go back to bed, old boy. I know all about it, and we have to take these mules to Pink Farm. I wish Pink Farm elsewhere, express my feelings to him in forcible language, and finally convince him under protest. However, we are soon friends again, and his convoy links up in rear of mine. We hear three reports of a rifle ring out on our right, a sniper still undiscovered at work. We arrive at W Beach, arresting the start of another convoy, which in turn also becomes part of ours, and I go to find O'Hara. Having found him, I told him my tale of woe. He says he will come with me to the 88th Brigade, and after taking stock and tacking a water cart onto the rear of the column, we trek off to Hill 138. Stopping there, O'Hara has a chat with the assistant provost marshal, who has been to the 88th headquarters and assures us that we are on the right track. On through the ruined village of Sedel Bar we go, down through a poplar grove enclosing a Turkish cemetery, where we overtake the commanding royal artillery riding alone with an orderly. We are on the white road that I noticed in the afternoon, and the commanding royal artillery takes the lead, as he states that a part of the road further up is rumored to be mined. Krithia lies ahead on our left in flames, a wonderful sight. It has stopped raining. We pass several brooks, and from them comes the clamoring noise of loudly croaking bullfrogs. We pass one after the other four white pillars of stone, about a hundred feet in height. On my right I can dimly see the waters of the Dardanelles. Dawn is just developing. The commanding Royal Artillery raises his hand and we stop. He rides cautiously forward with his orderly, and after a minute returns and orders us to follow him. He turns sharply to the left, makes a wide circuit, we following, and comes out on the white road once more further up. He then leaves us and disappears. We continue for three hundred yards when I come to the conclusion that we are very near our destination. Tell O'Hara so, and the command is given, Halt! O'Hara and I walk on up the road. Not a sound is heard, no shells, no rifle fire whatsoever. I can see no one about. I look to my right where brigade headquarters should be, and find nothing but some shallow dugouts. 
We go off to the right amongst bushes and trip over a few poor dead Tommies. We come back to the road. O'Hara thinks I am wrong. Good Lord, supposing that I am wrong after all this. We walk up the road further and suddenly come to a sentry standing in a trench on our right. I look to the left and see another trench and a sentry a little way on, on guard. The road goes on into darkness. I am smoking a cigarette and am ordered preemptorily by the sentry on my right to put it out. We question him and find that we have arrived at our front line. Every man of four is on guard. The other three sound asleep in the bottom of the trench. The sentry tells us that the Turkish line is a good way ahead and that he has seen or heard nothing from there since he has been on guard. He is shivering with cold, though muffled in his coat, but for all that looks a fine type of fellow. But he is Puka, and twenty-ninth as well, finest troops in the world bar none, the Finnish type of a disciplined British Tommy. Oh, for six more divisions of this quality, Achi Baba would have been ours this day. He directs us to brigade headquarters, Following his direction, we turn back down the road and come back to the shallow dugouts. During our absence, Thomas of the Essex and a naval officer, smoking a huge pipe and muffled to his ears in his white muffler and blue overcoat, had arrived. They tell us the dugouts are the 88th Brigade headquarters. We inquire for Thompson and the rest and are told that they have gone to 86th to confer. One by one, the little patient mules are unloaded and proceed down the road to wait and the boxes, rations, ammunition, and water are spread singly amongst the thick gorse off the road, so as not to be seen by the enemy in the morning. While this goes on, I talk to the naval officer, and learn from him that he is an observing officer for the ship's guns. He appears a very cool customer. He tells me that he is a very unlucky man to talk to, that an officer yesterday was wounded while talking to him, and another killed last night under the same circumstances. I wish him good night and good luck, and go back to the mules and help to hasten their unloading by helping myself. Colonel Patterson, officer commanding Mule Corps, keeps on urging upon us the importance of not losing the ropes, as when lost they are difficult to replace. The last mule being unloaded, we search for the water cart, but it is nowhere to be found. But tins of water are up now, and we hear that a well has been found, the water pure and not poisoned as we had feared, and so we start to trek back. A short way back, and O'Hara shouts, Halt! Then he says to me, Gillum, what's that dash mine we've heard so much about? I answer, Great Scott! Somebody behind us gives a muffled cough, and a Tommy, one of the armed escort, steps forward, and in a Tommy's polite manner says, Begging your pardon, sir, but we are standing on it. O'Hara shouts, Walk! March! and we move at a good four miles an hour until we arrive at the white pillars and the friendly sound of the croaking frogs. We realize at any rate that we are safe from landmines. Evidently this mine is a false alarm. Permission to smoke is given, and the Syrian boys exchange ration cigarettes and chatter to each other in Russian. Up to now they have been almost entirely silent. We pass many French troops sleeping in little hastily made camps, and we pass some Zouaves, looking picturesque in the early morning light in their quaint oriental uniforms. And so, through the silent cemetery and poplar trees, through said El Bar, now a large French camp, back past Hill 138 and home to W Beach. 
I give O'Hara a few of my iron ration biscuits and almost stagger to my supply depot, for I am hardly able to walk any further and lie down on my valise that my servant has thoughtfully laid out for me, beside the senior supply officer and Colonel Beden, falling off to sleep with the satisfaction that tomorrow, at any rate, the 88th will have their rations. End of section 4